And I was saying, if you have a notebook for the series that we're a few weeks into, you see on the screen, Where's God When It Hurts, page 8. Let me mention some things that are coming up. Tonight starts our five-evening vacation Bible school, and that is why all this stuff is set up behind me. It's also why this is set up on floor level rather than on our platform that we normally have up here. That'll all be reset up next week, but it's all in a good cause, the minor inconvenience that we have today with all the decorations and stuff out there. I think you can see from what they have here and what you saw out there that the folks who are running this have done a great job with it, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great time for all the kids who participate. So that's tonight, 6 o'clock to 8.30, and then uh, Monday through Thursday for the remainder of the week, Vacation Bible School. We also have our new, a couple of events for newcomers, our newcomers brunch and our newcomers orientation, both of those uh, next month. But those of you who are new to our church, I want to make sure you're aware of those. These are listed in our program that you received on the way in today, so you can take a look at the explanation there. But briefly, we have on Saturday, September the 6th, we have a newcomers brunch, and that will be at our house, and it'll be at 10 a.m., And it is for brunch, and it is, as the name suggests, for newcomers. So if you've never been to one of our brunches, and even if you've been around for a while and have never been able to attend one of the brunches, we'd love to have you come uh, to the one that we're having in September. So Saturday, September 6th, 10 a.m., we would love to have you come. uh, Just an informal time of getting to know you better. It's not a class or anything like that. If you have any questions about the church, I'd be happy to try to answer them in that setting. But you don't have to have any questions. Just come for brunch, and you get to know us and us you. Uh, We need to know who all is coming, though. So if you will let the folks know at the information desk before you leave, they'll give you an invitation. It has our address and phone number and a reminder of the date and time on it. Uh, You can get that at the information center. So that's the newcomer's brunch, Saturday, September 6th. The following day, the following Sunday, September 7th, we start our uh, four-week newcomer's orientation. The four Sundays in September during this hour, the 11 o'clock hour, uh, those of you that are new to our church will meet with me in a different room uh, for uh, a booklet of material that tells you who we are and where we've come from and what we believe and what our philosophy is and why we're so weird and all of that stuff. And in that setting, try to answer any questions you might have. And it's all designed to give you information to help you decide, is this the place that God would have you become a member and to grow and serve? It doesn't obligate you to anything. When we get to the end of that four weeks, I don't follow up with you. We don't hassle you. We don't say, you took it. Now what's the deal? What are you going to do? We wait for you to tell us. At the end of it, we tell you what you need to do if you want to follow up, and then we uh, leave it to you to do that or not. So it is strictly informational, but it will be those uh, four Sundays. So mark that on your calendar, and if you're new to our church, we would love to tell you uh, those things about who we are. And then last, uh, related to this series, Where is God When It Hurts? At the very beginning of your notebook, under the course description, I had a, a, a bibliography there. And in our first week, we went through some of those books, and I just uh, mentioned some of them that I think are particularly helpful And in fact, the list itself is annotated with some asterisks that denote whether it's hard reading or easy reading or highly recommended and and all of that. Well, some of the highly recommended books our staff in the Resource Center have purchased. So those books that are on the highly recommended list of the bibliography are available in our Resource Center. So if you want uh, one or more of those, you can go across the hallway, out this back door, 
and you can look at those and purchase if you so choose. All right, today, page 8, in our series, Where's God When It Hurts? And you see at the top of page 8, it says section 2. So this starts a new section today called The Purposes of Suffering. For the next few weeks, we are going to be looking in the remainder of the series, really, at God's purposes for suffering. And you see the title of this lesson is The Inward Direction of Suffering. And we're going to look at not only the inward direction, but the next week, the forward direction of suffering. What is God looking to accomplish in this in the future? Uh, The outward direction of suffering. How suffering can be used as an, an, an outreach in the lives of others. And then the upward direction of suffering. How Suffering brings us closer to God. So inward, forward, outward, and upward over the next few weeks. These all fall under that category, the purposes of of suffering. Let me begin today by stating what you have perhaps said or perhaps have heard from others over the years, and that is, why doesn't God just... In fact, I always love sentences that start that way. Why doesn't God just... Well, you could just stop there, (laughs) and you could just catch yourself and say, you know, because he's God. (laughs) And in fact, the Bible says that in Romans 9. In Romans chapter 9, uh, questions are put in the mouth of an interlocutor, you know, some imaginary questioner. And Paul uh, answers those questions from this imaginary person by saying, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? So sometimes that's the right answer. You know, why doesn't God just, and then we just need to stop and go, you know, I'm not God. But you perhaps have said or thought or heard others say, why doesn't God just eliminate all suffering? So what would would you say in answer to that? Why doesn't God just eliminate all suffering? Well, one question to ask in response to that question is this. Would you be willing to trade the elimination of suffering with the elimination of you and everybody else having the ability to be a free moral agent, to make free choices? Sometimes it's called free will. I don't love the term free will for theological reasons that I won't bore you with. But would you be willing to trade in the freedom of being a free moral agent. And then it becomes a little more complicated because if God eliminates all suffering, then he's going to have to eliminate that freedom as well because the truth is a good portion of the suffering that occurs occurs because of the very freedom that is a precious gift to most of us. But because of that freedom, and especially that freedom exercised by sinful people, results often in suffering. Another reason that God does not simply eliminate all suffering is what some call natural law. That is, there are natural laws that most of us deem to be good things that both the just and the unjust benefit from, the Bible teaches. But in order to to eliminate all suffering, it means that there would need to be a modification of that natural law. For example, You know, the sun, uh, 
uh, benefits both those who are followers of God and those who are not. But that same sun that is a benefit can also burn. And so as you ask that question, why doesn't God just eliminate all suffering? That would involve uh, him having to tweak, if not eliminate, natural laws as well. And then here's a third and most important reason. And that is the Bible teaches that in suffering, God engages in what one author has called soul-making. That God actually has purposes in suffering. And those purposes could really be summed up in soul-making. That is, bolstering, edifying, building up, constructing the souls of his people. And suffering, according to the Bible, is a key tool that God uses in that soul-making process. So next time you're asked or you're tempted to ask yourself, why doesn't God just eliminate all suffering, especially all the suffering in my life, remember that there are these, these reasons, and it's not as easy as it may seem, and chief among them is that God uses suffering for the soul-making process. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. What you're looking at on pages 8, 9, and 10 for the inward direction of suffering, focus upon what God does in us as, suffer, as he allows suffering to take place. Or you could call that, to put it another way, the soul-making that God does through suffering. And the example at the top of page 8, near the top of page 8, that says the hiker and the lumberjack is this. A hiker is hiking in a wooded area, and he comes upon a lumberjack in a river who is setting up logs for a log, a log roll down the, the river. And he's noticing as this lumberjack is setting these, setting these up that he's taking a spike and he's putting it in some of the trees but not in, in others. He's putting a mark in some of them and not in, in others. And so the hiker asks him, why are you doing that to some of them and, and not the rest? And the reason is, he says, that some of these trees have clearly come from the valley where they have not been exposed to the elements and to the weather. And as a result, they have a, a grain that's coarse and less usable. Others of these logs have clearly come from near the top of a mountain where they have been exposed to the elements. And as a result, it's a very fine grain and very usable lumber. And that's the kind of thing that God teaches in Scripture with regard to the soul-making that takes place in suffering. That he allows storms, as it were, into our lives to accomplish a number of good things that make us more usable in the future if we benefit, as he designs, from those events. So here are some of the things that God does in allowing suffering in, in our lives to make us better for the, the future. One, we need to remember in suffering that God values faith. God values faith. And what is faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a definition of, of faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says that we walk by, remember, we walk by faith and then gives the opposite. We walk by faith and not by sight. So if you want a succinct definition of, of faith, it is, it is trusting though I don't see. And in particular, trusting God though I don't see. 
Faith is believing, trusting God, even though I don't see, even though I don't have the sight, even though it's not plain to me, it's not clear to me, which is often the case. Now, sometimes people contrast faith not with sight, but they contrast it with evidence. That you have faith when there isn't any evidence. But the Bible does not contrast faith and evidence. It contrasts faith and sight. You see, there is good evidence. There is good reason for us to have faith. God has given you evidence, given me evidence, of his trustworthiness so that I can believe, have faith, even when I don't, even when I don't see. So it is not... a. Faith is not a lack of evidence, it's just a different kind of, of evidence. It's not telling you up front, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. Often God doesn't do that. But rather God has given you ample evidence to trust his character in the midst of that thing that you don't see. Has he not? And that's why the Bible often points to the resurrection of Jesus as the assurance that whatever you're going through is going to ultimately be okay because God raised Jesus from the dead. So the evidence that God has raised Jesus, that Jesus is alive, is evidence then that you should take your stand on in trusting God, believing God, even though you don't see in the moment all that he's seeking to accomplish. God raised Jesus, therefore Jesus is going to raise you, the Bible says. God raised Jesus, therefore Jesus is on the throne, the Bible teaches. And so nothing is out of his control. So God has given ample evidence for us to trust, for us to believe his good designs in the midst of what we don't see. And God values then faith because God values being trusted. God values faith because God values being trusted. And he's going to make you do that. He's going to make you and me trust him. And God also values, secondly, a life of faith. That is, you could write next to that, a way, he wants faith to be a way of life. So it's not just every now and then God wants us to bring things into our life so that we trust him with what we can't see and what we don't understand. But God values a whole life of faith. He wants it to become a way of, of life. So that we begin to know God better, trust God more, even in the times when things seem to be going well. Because you see, what happens to us is, when things are going well, we forget that it's God who makes them that way. And when we have times of difficulty, it reminds us the Lord gives and the Lord can take away. And in the taking away, he is designing that we focus upon him. But in the giving, in the good times, in the blessings, as a way of life, God wants us to trust him in the good and the bad. And there are blessings, thirdly on page 8, of the trials of, of, that God allows. God puts our faith, what we believe, what we claim to believe, on trial. And there are blessings that come out of that. One of those is this. You see written there, the trials and tragedies we experience reveal our true God, little g. And crises have a way of exposing who or what we depend on for life. 
Failure to trust God in the alarming moments of life is evidence of a weak faith. So one of the blessings of these trials is to show that to us, show us the reality of our faith. Is it genuine? Is it authentic? Is it real? Or does it require bolstering? To put this another way, God uses this as a time to purify our faith, to remove dross and to expose the dross that is in our faith, to peel away that which is not genuine and not real so that our faith is bolstered for the next day, the next week, and the next year. And God also desires, bottom of page 8, that we become dependent on the provider, not the provision. It's through our difficulties, we say at the bottom of page 8, that we come to understand God's presence and power over despair. Most of us rely on what God does for us rather than upon God himself. When we become focused upon the things that God has given us, he may choose to remove those distractions so that we can see him more clearly and redirect our attachment from the things of this world to God himself. Now, how do you do that? How do you and I practice a regular dependency a regular trust, a regular faith in God, while at the same time carrying out our responsibilities. Now, on the one hand, God has told me there's stuff I've got to do. And I don't just sit around, or at least I hope you don't do this, I don't just sit around and say, I'm just waiting for God to do something. I'm just letting go and letting God. Yes, the bill collectors are coming, but I'm just letting go and letting God. So God has given me responsibilities. How on the one hand do I carry out those responsibilities? On the other hand, I'm fully trusting God in in all of that. Well, there are a couple of phrases that I've used in counseling folks over the years that the principle for which is applicable to how we divide this up. And those phrases are these, that we need to understand the difference between two circles of life, two circles. One is our circle of concern. My circle of concern. So you could just draw on a piece of paper a circle and then just write in that circle concern. That's my circle of concern. What goes in my circle of concern? Depends on how thoughtful you are. That is how much you think. How much you brood. Ladies, listen carefully. I say this because I've told... uh, I think, I don't know if I mentioned it in this class or not, but I've told some of you in counseling that I have a book called, this is the title of the book, Women Who Think Too Much. It's not written by a Christian. Some of you ladies are laughing. Some of you husbands are elbowing your wives. It's written by a woman at the University of Michigan, a psychiatrist. And that's the title of the book, Women Who Think Too Much. And she gives a number of reasons why women tend to brood more than men. It's just a general tendency. Now, we all worry sinfully from time to time. We all have anxiety from time to time, male and female, but women who think too much. So everyone listen up, ladies in particular, listen up. There's a circle with concern in it. And what are you concerned about? Well, that depends on how much you brood, how much you think. You might be concerned like about, say, everything. And if you're concerned about everything... And everybody, and what everybody's doing, and why everybody did what everybody's doing, and why everybody didn't invite you to what they were doing. I mean, if you're just concerned about everything, yikes. 
But let's be honest, many of us are just, we've got a big circle of concern. It, can, it includes world hunger. It includes, you know, the war in the Middle East. And then it includes all the stuff that's going on around me in everybody's life, and I'm watching it, and I'm making conclusions, drawing conclusions about it, and I'm thinking about it, and sometimes I blurt it out. And it's making me crazy. It's my circle of concern. But then within your circle of concern is a subcircle, a smaller circle. And you could just draw a smaller circle inside that one and label it responsibility. There's my circle of concern and there's my circle of responsibility. And if you can focus on what God Almighty has given you as your circle of responsibility, which, take my word for it, is way narrower than your circle of concern. And you can focus yourself upon that. It will give you a peace of mind that you may have never had. And that circle of responsibility is large enough for every one of us. Just the circle of stuff that God has given me to do and holds me responsible for is enough. Without concerning myself with all sorts of other things that he's not given to me. And in our lives, that's the way I believe we should pursue our relationship with God. He gives us responsibilities and thus holds us responsible for carrying them out. And we do our best by God's grace and before God to carry out those responsibilities. And then we not only don't worry about it, we trust God. We have faith, we believe. Lord, I'm doing my level best by your grace with the gifts that you have given me to carry out the responsibilities that you've assigned to me. And now, Lord, I trust you. I trust you to work it out. I'm taking care of my circle of responsibility. I'm asking you to take care of the circle of concern. How's it going to turn out? What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen with my kids? All the possibilities of things that could happen that you brood about and worry about and have panic attacks about. I'm entrusting to you, God. So God desires a purified faith, page 8. And so he allows, in this inward direction of suffering, things that he's accomplishing in us, suffering to occur. But he desires some other things as well in pages 9 and 10. He desires a humble heart. And he will use suffering in order to create that, if necessary. You see one of the passages listed there is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Some of you are familiar with 2 Corinthians 12. It's a passage where uh, Paul says that my strength is made perfect in, in weakness, that, that, that God's grace shines all the greater in the weakness that he allows to come into my life. And what was that weakness in Paul's life? It was a thorn. He calls it something. Uh, he calls it uh, a thorn in his flesh. He doesn't identify precisely what that is. Many of us believe it was a physical malady that God allowed Paul to suffer. But whatever it was, it was something that, was, that God allowed and that God used in order to keep Paul humble. That's precisely what Paul says. I have all sorts of reasons for me to go off and be prideful. I've been to the third heaven, he says. How many of you can say that? 
And it was after I was, what was it, four years old, this kid went to heaven and wrote a book about it. Paul couldn't write about a book about it. It's amazing. Paul goes to the third heaven and says, I can't tell you about it. This four-year-old goes, writes a book and a movie about it. And we all go, wow, look at that. God's for, heaven's for real. Well, I'm glad this four-year-old came through. Anyway, I feel better now. So Paul says, I've been to the third heaven. I've had these revelations from God. And all of these surpassing graces that God has given to me could make me prideful. And therefore, God gave me this thorn in the flesh to humble, to humble me. At the top of page 9, we have the example of Bill. And Bill is a guy whose self-made success in his career... And his entire life has been climbing up the, the corporate ladder. He has a wife and, and three kids. The kids are smart and doing well in school. But the wife and the kids are really not for relating to for Bill. They're mostly as trophies to show Bill's success. And this is the way Bill's pursuing his life, in this prideful way. Bill has a car accident. It's a minor car accident. He thinks everything's okay, and Bill continues in uh, his same pattern, except that in his demeanor, he becomes different. He had never been a particularly kind guy, but he also wasn't overbearing, but now he's becoming angry, and he's acting in ways that he hadn't acted before. And he finally goes to the doctor, and they do some exams, and they uh, recognize that he had, uh, he had a, um, uh, an internal brain injury in what they thought was a minor car accident. And now Bill's going to have to undergo brain surgery. And as a result of that humbling event, it changed Bill. Bill began to realize very quickly what was important and how prideful he had, be, had become. Sometimes God brings difficulty into our lives to humble us. He did it with Paul. He may have to do it with me. He may have to do it with you. God desires a purified faith, a humble heart. Middle of page 9, he desires to test our faithfulness. To prove that we are up for the next assignment. Because God always has a next assignment for us. And I have to remember this in my own life, as do you. I'll have big projects in my life, and I'll say, okay, that's done, and I think I can skate now. Okay, the building's done. Cool. We're on easy street now. But God always has a next assignment, a next thing that he wants you and me to take to the next level. But that means he has to prepare us at prior levels in order for us to be ready. So the example is a sponge. Yeah, it's a simple example, but there are all kinds of sponges. Some will do the job, depending on the job you have, and some won't. And God is trying to make us the kind of people who will be able to do the job that he assigns to us, a job that we don't even know until he assigns it. So as example, Abraham. And we all know Abraham as the father of the faithful and as a man of great faith. But we sometimes forget that Abraham failed many times in his faith before he finally 
was ready for the big test, the final exam. And so you remember how he failed, that uh, God told him to go to one place, but he decided to take a detour and a famine to go to Egypt. While there, he lied about the identity of his, his wife. Uh, he also had been promised a son by God, but though, and because God delayed in delivering on that promise, he took matters into his own hands. He had a son, Ishmael, by someone not his, his wife. And then when God did announce that Isaac was going to be born to his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, he laughed. In fact, named Isaac Laughter. That's what his name means. So he failed a number of times before Genesis chapter 22 and the test in which God has him go on Mount Moriah with Isaac and sacrifice him. Many of you know the story that God did not require ultimately the life of Isaac, but he did severely test Abraham. And Abraham was ready for this test now, in large part because of failures that had gone on before and things he had learned through those failures. So God desires to test our faithfulness because there is a greater exam that is coming. And then lastly, on the bottom of page 9, God desires well-behaved children. That is, God disciplines those that are his children. Bottom of page 9 says the cassette player, and all that means is this. Uh, one, it means this material is old. Two, <laughs> two. It's, you know, it's a recording device, a DVD player, an iPod that your kid has, but if your kid misbehaves, you may say, I'm going to take your iPod as a form of discipline. And that's what God does with his children sometimes. He disciplines, and sometimes that discipline means a taking away, page 10. And here are some of the reasons that God disciplines us. To teach us obedience to bring confession and repentance, to demonstrate his love, to help us know him in a personal way, to make us, to make us holy. So sometimes the suffering in our lives is for disciplinary purposes. Now, how can you know when suffering in your life is a matter of you being disciplined or it's just me living in a fallen world? And the answer to that is most often you do not. Very often, you do not know that God is using this for discipline because you are doing some things wrong and to correct you, to train you, or uh, if it's simply because I'm living in a fallen world. And so since I can't know often whether or not it's discipline from God or simply a matter of living in a fallen world, what I ought to do is always seek to learn from every circumstance that God brings. And if I do that, no matter what God's ultimate purpose is that he hasn't told me, whether discipline or just because I'm being hit with the shrapnel of the war that goes on in a fallen world, then I will be able to achieve God's designs, whether discipline or otherwise. Now, I don't want to scare anybody, but I just want to make this statement, and then I'll move on. But the Bible does teach that if you're a child of God and you are living in sin, he will discipline you. If you are living in disobedience to God, he will discipline you. 
If he does not discipline you and you are living in regular, continued disobedience to God, then it may be that you're not God's child. I will tell you as a pastor that one of the things I fear is getting a phone call about people in my church that God has chosen to discipline because I know they are living in unrepentant sin. And if they are children of God, God will not allow that to go on. And I fear getting that phone call. Come to the hospital, so-and-so is here. Now, I can't know just like you can't know. What I can know is God does that. How do I know that? Romans, excuse me, Hebrews 12 says that. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians 11 says that. That God does that in the lives of those who are genuinely his children, but who are going in the opposite direction of what he has designed for them. And he will do what is necessary to cut that down. Different interpretations of 1 John chapter 5 and the sin unto death that is stated there. My understanding is God will discipline and then at some point if someone is truly a child of God, he will say enough and he will take them home. That's how serious God is about this. Again, I don't say that just to scare I say that because God says that. And I'm telling you that there are people who name the name of Jesus who are okay to live in regular and unrepentant sin. And God's not okay with that. Now, I'd like to end our time with a uh, story of a family that I heard about just this past week. Let me give you some background, and then I want to tell you what I think is the amazing story of this family and the faith that God generated through their extreme difficulty. I heard about this family through an email I got earlier this week from Sharon Sternberg. Many of you know James and Sharon Sternberg, members of our church for several years, moved a month and a half ago to the west side of the state. Sharon sent me an email on Monday with a link to a news article and she said, this news article is about a young couple who were friends of my, Sharon's daughter, and her, her husband. And so I clicked on the link to this article, and it was about a young couple. And the reason the article was current is because it was the 10th anniversary of the murder of this couple. A couple that Sharon's daughter and son-in-law we're friends with. Now here's the story of this, this couple. They met in Bible college. <clears throat> and they were serving the Lord <clears throat> at a Christian camp in California. They had just finished their final day of camp with the campers there. And they were scheduled to be married in a month. They decided after the last day of camp that they would drive north toward San Francisco and California and that they would camp out. Now you say, wait a minute, they're not married. They can't do that if they're Christians. That's true. But this young couple actually went there together and they slept in 
separate sleeping bags. I'll tell you how we know this in a minute. But they just went to enjoy this time together and enjoy God's creation together. And they found a secluded spot on a beach and they put down sleeping bags and went to sleep. And that night, someone still unknown walked up to this young couple and shot them both in the head. And they died in their sleep on this beach in California. They were to return back to the camp to get their belongings and to move out and then to go on with their wedding. But they didn't return, obviously, and when they didn't, uh, their families were notified. Families in Michigan and Ohio. The young man is from Zeeland, Michigan, and the young lady is from Fresno, Ohio. I didn't know there was a Fresno, Ohio. The, the parents are both Christians, and they knew something was wrong when they got this call. They went out to California. The investigators, a couple of days into it, found their bodies on the, on the beach, notified the, uh, the families. And these two sets of parents had to deal with this news of the murder of their children in their mid-twenties who were serving the Lord. Now, what ended up happening out of, out of all of that? Well, one of the uh, sets of parents, the, the gal's parents from Fresno, Ohio, dad, Chris Cutshaw, is a pastor at Fresno Bible Church. And the police sergeant who gave the news to him and the other parents said later, I, something was different about this guy's reaction. Because when I told him that they were killed in their sleep, he not only did not fall apart, he almost had a joy about it. How weird is that, this guy thought. It prompted this sergeant to ask this guy, Chris Cutshaw, what's the deal with you? And Pastor Cutshaw was able to witness to this policeman of his faith in Christ and the fact that he was certain that his daughter was instantly with Jesus. And I wish I was with her, he says. Not only that, though, I'm going to be with her. So the cool thing is, she's with Jesus. The minute you told me she died, I'm thinking, not about my loss, but she's with Jesus. And this guy just says, I've never seen anything like it. Well, you probably are guessing the end of that story. Guess what happened to that police officer? He came to Jesus. He's an elder in his church out in California. And I was so moved by the story uh, that I contacted Pastor Cutshaw this week. And I thanked him for his testimony, and I said, have you put your testimony in writing? Do you ever go and give it? I would love to have you come sometime. We may do that. We may actually do that. But he was kind enough to send me his written testimony. And I want to give you some things that he said, some truths that they have been standing on in the aftermath of their daughter's death. The first is this. 
He says, Jason and Lindsay were born to die young, but to live forever. You see there, and he goes on to explain, none of this was outside the control of God. God knew every piece of this. I've known that my whole life, I've preached that my whole life, and I believe that now, he says. They were born to die young, but to live forever. He says, secondly, they were ready. And how do I know they were ready? Because I know they knew Jesus. And Jesus is the resurrection and life. And he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then he goes on to say, God is good. And I know God is good because I've seen it throughout Scripture. I've seen it in the story of Joseph and the treachery of his brothers and God weaving all of those circumstances together. And even though Joseph's brothers meant it for evil, God intended it, you remember, for good. And then he goes on to recount the story of this police officer who came to Jesus through that and the countless people that they've been able to help with their testimony. He says another truth that we're standing on is the fact that God is being glorified through this. He says there's something even more important than the physical lives of our two precious children. Not much, just one thing, God's glory. Their deaths were not in vain. God is being glorified, which is our highest hope, and we trust him, reverence him, and worship him. He says, as Christian parents who adore their children and still deeply grieve our great loss, we are satisfied in Christ. And now we understand what Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. We can't explain what's going on in us and to us and through us. But we know if we're going to experience satisfaction, peace, and power, it has to come from His grace, which we have found to be more than enough. We know of His worth, and we are satisfied in Him. Here's another truth. Satan is a punk. He says, who am I? He's a powerful enemy. I respect his power, but I do not fear him because in Christ he's a defeated foe. So I stand by faith in the strength of the Lord. Satan used an utterly evil coward to try to mess with our faith and to neutralize Jason and Lindsay's testimony, but the punk's plan didn't work. And then he says a final truth. We are trusting God fully. We have no idea who killed our kids. We still have, to have, after all these years, an incredibly professional team of detectives working our case who are dedicated in capturing Lindsay and Jason's killer, and we couldn't be more proud of them. Yet we may still be miles away from solving the case, but, as Peter said, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we can actually pity the murderer, for he does not have to deal with the pitiful anger and peddly little hate-filled parents, but rather he must face the terrible wrath of the living God whose very face is against him. Don't talk to me about getting the guy for closure's sake. Listen, case closed, he says. That's an amazing faith, isn't it? But that's a faith drawn directly out of the Word of God. 
and a man who believes it and teaches it and lives it, then at the time of the testing of his faith is actually able to articulate it. That can be anyone here. Because that's what Jesus does in the faith he generates in his people. And that's the kind of faith, I hope, that God builds in me, builds in you, so that we can be testimonies like this dear family. I hope to have Pastor Cutshaw. I'm going to be contacting them to come and give their testimony. But he finally says this in closing. Lindsay had a poster hanging on her bedroom wall, and it said this, The Fellowship of the Unashamed. And this is how I think of Jason and Lindsay. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed, he says. May that be true of each of us. Let's go to the Lord together. Father, thank you that I can call you Father because I am your child. Because I, because we, are your children. Therefore, we know that we are in your hand every moment of every day. We know that nothing befalls us except it be by your wise and good counsel. We know that. Oh, but Lord, we forget that. You remind us, thank you, for this reminder from your word and then from the experience of your servants. I thank you for the testimony of these dear saints. And I thank you for how you are using them in the lives of others. And I pray your continued blessing upon them as they continue to grieve and to heal, but also to be used as your vessels. I pray, Lord, that this reminder today from your word of the things that you accomplish through suffering in our lives will be a help to your people in the struggle that we will go and face now Monday through Saturday. Help us, Lord, to put into perspective what you have allowed to come our way. None of us has yet suffered to the point of death, as the writer of Hebrews says. And so thank you, Lord, for reminding us of the perspective that we should have, that the suffering that we have compared to the suffering of God the Son is all relatively small. But in it, it is painful and it is difficult. So thank you, Lord, for the light of your word that enlightens us regarding you, regarding your purposes, regarding your resources for us in the midst of the suffering. Help us this week, then, to look at ourselves, to look at our circumstances through your eyes, through the prism of your word. As a result of that, may we be strengthened and not deterred in the things you've allowed to come into our lives. May we achieve the purposes that you have for us in it. We ask you, Lord, bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.